Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ, made in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't always involve medicine. We've been hearing a lot about the problems of healthcare, but we also want to talk about solutions. Whatever we're going to do to fix healthcare, whether it's bullying or burnout or patient safety, it's going to require change. And change is hard. I'm Clara Monroe, and in this episode of Doctor Informed, we're going to be talking about that dreaded phrase, but it's always been done that way. And today, joining me to hear from some experts and offer some expertise of his own is Graham Martin. Thanks for joining us back on the podcast, Graham. Can I get you to reintroduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, Clara. Yes, I'm happy to. So I'm Graham Martin. Um, I'm Director of Research at the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute at the University of Cambridge. Lovely. Um, So the title of today's episode is, but it's always been done that way. Um, And it's probably a bit triggering for people who work in the NHS, who uh, I'd be surprised if no one had heard that adage before, especially if they've ever tried to initiate change. Um, Have you have you ever heard this, um, Graham, in your work? I have. And I think it's probably fair to say that you hear it quite a lot in the NHS. I think it's also fair to say that you hear it in all sorts of other fields as well, and particularly large organisations. I mean, that's something that we might get into a bit later on. It's one of those cliches about bureaucracies as well, is that they're very good at doing what they already do, but they're less good at adapting. So it's certainly not unique to the NHS. It's not unique to healthcare. It's a challenge for everyone, but there are ways to try to address it, as we'll hear later on. Do you think there's a reason why it predominates more in healthcare than other fields or do you think that that's you know I just wear a healthcare hat so obviously I I, I'm probably going to think that I I don't know that it does necessarily um, exist more in healthcare than in other fields Um, I think again it's a stereotype um, which perhaps has a thread of truth to it that it is something that can take hold more easily in large bureaucracies and perhaps in public service organisations, partly because they tend to be large bureaucracies. Now, there have been lots of efforts to try to change that to make organisations more dynamic in the public sector and the private sector. Some have been more um, successful than others, uh, but I don't think it's fair to say that an a public service organisation or a healthcare organisation is inevitably going to be um, bureaucratic and grinding to a halt and finding reasons not to change. And I don't think that's true of the organisation necessarily, and it's certainly not necessarily true of the people in that organisation. Do you think it's... (laughs) Do you think it's more to do with size? Um, And I'm, you know, generalising here, but I suppose public sector organisations tend to be bigger um, than private sector organisations, which can be big, but can also be quite small. Um, And I'm thinking particularly about, you know, conversations I've had with friends who work in in the private sector, who maybe have worked for a big company, and then they've gone to a smaller startup where suddenly they are you know, a bigger cog in a smaller machine rather than a small cog in a huge machine. And their reflection is often that more bureaucracy and more resistance to changes is created when you're in a much larger company. Do do you think that 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 might have something to do with that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly some truth in that. So size is um, a cause of complexity, but size um, also necessitates, um, you know, ways of dealing with that complexity and ways of dealing with the size. So bureaucracy 
actually, if you, you know, if you look at the sort of the history of bureaucracy and the theory behind bureaucracy, the whole idea of bureaucracy is to try to give structure to and to organise the chaos that can come from, you know, lots of functions, lots of people working together. And actually a well-functioning bureaucracy in, in a sort of the classic notion of, of the word and not, not the pejorative sense in which it's sometimes used is, you know, quite well equipped to deal with that kind of complexity and deal with mm. the challenges that arise from lots of people doing lots of things with um, distinct functions who have to relate to each other. And it is good at that up to a point, but it can also um, cause its own problems in terms of, you know, sort of the overhead that goes with decision making and arguably in terms of the way that bureaucracy tends to perpetuate itself. So it, it, it is, again, it's a, it's a cliche and sometimes it's used by people to attack bureaucracies and to attack the healthcare organisation, mm. not necessarily with um, good faith intentions. But there is some truth to the notion that bureaucracy perpetuates itself. Bureaucracy is very good at creating um, more bureaucracy. So the difference yeah. between something like the NHS, which is a big organisation, and perhaps even more importantly, a complex organisation with lots of different things going on, lots of different people working to slightly different purposes who have to be coordinated. The difference between that kind of organisation and a small startup, as you say, is is huge. And that's to do with size. It's to do with what's already in place. And it's to do with sort of the um, the way you have of trying to coordinate. So it's much easier to coordinate among a smaller number of people. It's much easier to coordinate in a in a simpler organisation where perhaps the purpose is a little bit more straightforward as well. But you know, even those startup organisations will very quickly start to encounter the kinds of challenges that bureaucracy is partly a solution to, but also can sometimes um, you know perpetuate and and give rise to more of. So that's probably a really good time to um, to bring in our first interviewer. Um, and that'll be coming up right after this message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we're different. With no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members, we take a discretionary approach to providing assistance. This flexibility lets us help where other providers may not treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way, whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org UK. And now our interview with Penny Pereira. Hello, it's great to be here. So I'm um, Penny. I'm the Managing Director of Q at the Health Foundation, which is uh, an independent charity committed to bringing bringing about better health and healthcare in the UK. Um, I've been at the Foundation for about a decade, um, so focused on our kind of leadership work, our work on, you know, how you improve patient flow through through healthcare organisations and how you can kind of learn and innovate through through networks. before that, I've worked in the NHS, so mostly supporting clinical teams to improve care. Uh, I've kind of alternated between national roles and working in local trusts, mainly around London. Um, I've been leading the kind of Q initiative for the last six years, so 
Q's a community of thousands of people across the UK and Ireland who are collaborating to change health and care for the better. So it's all about bringing together people with a whole diverse range of skills, knowledge and perspectives and kind of trying to make it easier for those people to inspire and support each other. Um, so, yeah, anyone can apply to join for free to become a member and to make the most of what Q has to offer. But we've also got loads of insights, tools, resources uh, to support people in their improvement work that's available to everyone, whether or not you're a member. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I spend my time. I'm really glad you answered my first question, actually, which was, what is the Q initiative? Because I'd not heard of it before, which is shameful. It, it really um, is. <laughs> 4,600 4, members and uh, climbing every day. You can you can join at any point. So One of the other editors just mentioned to me before I came down here, are you not a member of the Q community? I'm a member of the Q community. It's fantastic. So, um, yeah, so that's a, yeah, a definite... Um, prod for me to do a little bit more work about what it is and how to get involved um i'm interested from obviously your vast experience working in the nhs and now with q um there are loads of models there are loads of theories there are loads of books about enacting change um in reality i'm sure clinicians do not always find this easy to do um and you know, the title of this episode is But It's Always Been Done That Way. And I would challenge anyone in the NHS not to have heard that little phrase before. Oh, gosh. I mean, you're, you're so right that, like, change is hard. It can take a long time. I suspect that is true to an extent across industries. Uh, I think there's definitely cultural aspects to it, but I think it's also, like, woven into the processes and the systems, the structures that we use that can get in the way of of actually you know, iterating and, and improving improving care. The, the, the language that you use around it, things have always been done that way. Um, that, that tends to lead you to think about, actually, you know, there are some laggards, there are some people who are resisting change because of kind of vested interests. Um, but actually, I kind of think that way of thinking about it, uh, it can actually make it harder to get to a good place. Um, because I guess... Um, if, if you really want to understand, create the conditions within which people are going to really engage, they're going to commit to working with you, to designing and introducing a version of whatever change you want to achieve that's actually going to work and that's going to last beyond the point at which you're kind of pushing people to do it, um, then actually you kind of need to get out of the mindset of assuming that other people are, are being resistant because it's that's just a common, uh, you know, uh, a phenomenon and really, really listen to try and understand um, you know, what, what is the set of reasons why people are, are resisting this particular change? A, a key principle of improvement for me is not all changes and improvement, even the best ideas need a lot of iteration and, and support. And actually people who are challenging you, the resistance you get is part of the process of making that better. You've talked about projects that have succeeded uh, and I'm interested in this idea of success in, in how you define success in innovation in healthcare? Ooh, um, I mean, I, I think it is inherent to improvement that you should start off really being clear about what success looks like and defining that well. Um, you may need to change your definition of success as you go along, but rather than have a kind of abstract generic measure of success, I guess I would say you, you should always have a a, a set of goals and you should have a way of measuring that and you should probably also make sure you have a balancing measure so a measure that tells you if you're actually going off track and making things worse which which is obviously possible um i mean linking back to our, our other conversation 
that there is success that you can achieve on a small scale. And there's a certain set of measures that that you could look at there. Uh, I guess I'm increasingly interested in the things that will enable adoption at a kind of large scale. And I think if you if you want to create something that's going to be able to be uh, adopted and make a difference on on a kind of bigger scale, then there's a there's an additional set of things that you need to take into account. So you need to understand the conditions that made it possible that you could introduce that particular change. So often it's not just about the, the change to the clinical process or the pro forma. It's about the other things that sat around that that made that possible. So that if you try and implement that in the next ward or in another hospital, you know, often it's not the specific change to the pro forma that will make the difference. It's it's the other stuff. In terms of unintended consequences of change, um, do you have a strategy um, either personally or, you know, through Q, about measuring unintended co- unintended consequences. And, I mean, I, I guess it's the, the old phrase, like, you can't please everyone all of the time. Is there some situations where you have to say, OK, um, this isn't going to work for everybody, but, you know, we've got this greater goal to reach? Um, and the example I'm thinking of, I always go back to surgery because it's what I do, but... Um, We've obviously got this huge surgical backlog and, you know, a few places I've worked have said, right, we've got these consultants that can get through, you know, 12 hernias in a day. We'll put them on the list and we'll, you know, smash through all these hernias and in no time the backlog will be gone. Um, Obviously, the unintended consequence is you then aren't training, you know, more surgeons. So in 10 years time, when those surgeons retire, you've got an untrained workforce and, you know, it's the balance between getting through things but also getting the job you know getting the job done but also making sure that you're not creating an unintended consequence is there in your process when you're um implementing change do you have a do you have a way of 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 sort of managing that or do you trial it and then come back and have another look oh gosh (laughs) that's a big question let me I, i guess in relation to the example that you know you've raised around waiting lists um yes there's the risk around the kind of training of the next generation of consultants but um Actually, in the short term, there's so much greater um, challenge around balancing the the morale, the capacity of the staff making a change and the kind of operational imperative to be getting through backlogs in care. And you know, that, that's just going to be with us. It's going to be so significant for the coming years. And and one of the things that we've seen from conversations I've been having with, with colleagues in, in the different countries, the UK and Ireland, is this phenomenon that those places that have greatest pressure in terms of waiting lists and where there's the greatest pressure just to be pushing the activity through are also the areas where people are likely to get so burnt out and so pressured, you know, and where actually, you know, what you need is not just pushing through the activity, but you've got to create the space for be able to step back and actually think more holistically about uh, about the care that's being provided and, and create an environment where people then have the opportunity to actually, you know, take a bit of time out to understand and design their processes, not just because that that's going to enable a better solution that doesn't have as many unintended consequences, but also it'll be really important for morale. Um, so, so I think the specific question of waiting lists is going to be a really prime example of, of what we need to be paying attention to. I guess the the other thing that your your question made me think about was um, an example from when I was kind of uh, doing one of my earliest kind of improvement projects, trying to introduce opportunities for people to book their own uh, 
uh, surgical kind of uh, admission and their own outpatient appointments. And um, what, 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 there were a whole set of people who had an interest in the changes that we were making. Obviously, there was the surgeon, there was the kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the kind of theatre staff, there was the medical secretaries. We were introducing a whole set of changes all at once. There was the management who had certain targets that we wanted to reach. Um, uh, and, and, and actually, you know, systematically trying to map out the different perspectives and what was going to be important to those different people was a really important part of, of the process. I think that what, what I look back and realise is that it's very easy to then spend time focused on the people who you feel are most important and are, uh, are holding most weight in that immediate context. So I, I look back sometimes with, with shame at, at some of the changes I introduced because actually I, I, I did pay more attention to the consultant who ultimately had greater power to... Um, you know, uh, make a difference as to whether the change I was introducing would would sink or swim, um, but but actually I put much less weight on the the the, the people who were kind of staffing the call in centres and what they were telling us, and it was much harder to get a perspective of actually what was important to um, service users and not just you know the patients who we had on our panel, but actually those people who might not be coming forward. So, I guess that that process of understanding all of the different steps and who's involved and then thinking about what those different people need is probably necessary in order to get to a point where you know you are considering the different through through having visibility of what all of those people can see you'll avoid having kind of lopsided solutions um, because you'll have greater visibility of all of the different considerations I guess that needs to be given some some weighting that isn't just about who's most important to you now, but really making sure you are covering the bases uh, in terms of the things that you're paying attention to. I can hear when you're reflecting on that, that that's, that's obviously something that you feel quite strongly about and that you thought, I don't want to do that again. Is that something that you... Is that something that you think you can teach people when they're making a change about how to make sure that they're listening to all the all the right people? Or do you think that that's just something that comes with experience that you've learned over time? I think there are a set of easy to use pragmatic methods that help to sort of pay attention and listen. Um, so sometimes those are kind of process methods. So mapping your different stakeholders or you know, in the Q community, there's something called liberating structures, which is just taking off. Uh, um, it, it's a kind of whole set of like really little processes that you can use in meetings to make them like both much more fun and much more genuinely inclusive. And they only take like a few minutes to implement and it just creates a different kind of conversation. So I think there are process things like that that make it easier to be a leader who is able to pay attention to a different range of voices. Certainly, I wasn't exposed to that early on in my career. It's made a big difference since I've been able yeah. to have those have those tools. But I mean, ultimately, you know, improvement, it, it is also about kind of leadership. It's about people. It, it, it leads you into places that kind of <laughs> require you to kind of examine your own kind of approach and, and way of thinking about change. Um, and, and so at a certain point, it, it, it does call you to dig a bit deeper in terms of, you know, what you're paying attention to, um, issues of power, issues of kind of relationships and hierarchy. Um, I, I, I think uh, over time, 
the, the, the sort of technical sides of improvement should become kind of easier, more straightforward. I, I think they continue to be an important part of the mix, but it's actually the, the human and relational, the political side of things, which, um, y- you know, you learn to pay more attention to perhaps. I think my first reflection when listening back to that interview with Penny um, was this idea of where the power is is held in terms of where we think about who we think about is important when we're making a change. I think generally um, in the NHS, the person that's at the centre of any change is always going to be patient. And that's obviously incredibly important. But I was really interested to hear Penny talk about um, how actually those stakeholders, you know, whether it's doctors, nurses, allied healthcare professionals, managers, how actually those changes can affect them positively and negatively. And how often we don't always think about that whenever we're trying to make a big change. Um, is that something you've experienced? Yeah, I think it, it was a really um, good point from Penny. And I really liked her turn of phrase. I think she talks about lopsided solutions, which is exactly mm. right. They, they may well be solutions, but they are solutions that address some aspects of the problem better than others. And as she said, often the temptation is to, to look at the people who can really veto this if they want to, the most powerful people who are often um, the consultants or perhaps the senior managers. And that's fine. I mean, it's really, really important, of course, to ensure that you bring those people on side because they do have that power of veto. And so if you fail to get them to engage, um, then you're on a probably on a highway to failure. But if you you know, end up with solutions that don't take into account the views of others, then A, you're going to annoy a lot of people. Um, B, you're going to come up with things that don't necessarily work. And C, you're going to come up with things that may have unintended consequences. And that's because, you know, a very wide range of people often have a different perspective on the problem and actually will help you to understand the problem in the round. And very often, and I mean, you know, the, the things that you talk about with in terms of operating theatres, but also you can think of flow through hospitals. These are really challenging issues because they cross boundaries, because changing one part of a system can have an intended fe- um, consequences for another part of a system. So in order to get to a solution that at least has a chance of working um, and that doesn't piss people off, that does engage people and does take full advantage of the understanding they bring to that problem. It's really important to try to engage the full range of different people, including the ones who seem less powerful. Mm. Yeah, and I think some of these these concepts and topics that Penny brought up, I thought, uh, okay, like I can, you know, I could see myself using terms like that to to try and talk the same language as the people who I need to get on board, um, who hold the money. Yeah, and a lot of that language does have a useful purpose, but sometimes it can turn people off, frankly. And sometimes, and I think this is perhaps the most dangerous bit, it, it is when these kinds of the same terms are used to different purposes. And sometimes that mm. can certainly happen with stakeholders. So you know, stakeholder management from a comms perspective might mean a very particular set of relatively powerful stakeholders whereas the stakeholders you're trying to involve as we've just said in a a change initiative are going to go much much broader than that and it's about you know trying to um, ensure you give the, the the respect and the importance to people who might be missed out um, I want to to go back to some of the things you've said, but I think now is probably quite a good time to bring in um, the interview with Moira Durbridge um, because she comes up with some really practical examples that we can build on. Um, I think about some of the things that you've just said. 
So here's my interview with Moira Durbridge, Director of Safety and Risk at University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust. Doctors find it really difficult to accept accept failure. You know, it's kind of not really built into the way that we're trained. Um, is that something you've seen in, in the work that you've done clinically and and in the more on the more kind of managerial and corporate side? I think that that is right. But I think increasingly, as we become much more of an improvement minded organisation, and as improvement um, methodologies are more accepted, I think people understand that to embark on a QI journey will often involve things that don't work and fail, and that's Mm. fine. Um, And that testing, some things you test work and some things you test don't. Um, So at the early stages of COVID, um, we tested the virtual ward environment and what we thought would work very well and easily some things didn't they were much more of a a a barrier and a burden and other things worked well but incrementally you improve so we started virtual wards for covid for covid patients and then more for copd patients and then for heart failure patients and now for af patients and what works well for one group may be subtly different for the next group so i think encouraging people to understand that um, whether we call it failure or things that don't work is part of the journey and it's to be expected. So people shouldn't be discouraged by that. They should expect that to happen, but reflect, learn and refine and then then move on. I think one of the massive barriers in my experience, um, and I, do you know, I used to think it was maybe UK or, you know, NHS centric, but I was actually editing a paper on um, how to reduce preoperative testing um, earlier by some Canadian authors. And they had mentioned something which was, I don't know, it was so reminiscent to me of any time I've tried to make any change in the NHS. Um, They said one of the massive barriers was people's attitude of it's always been done this way. Um, And as soon as I read it, I thought, okay, maybe this is a healthcare thing rather than a UK or an NHS thing. Um, what in your role how do you how do you guard against that how do you guard against that barrier of people saying well we've always done it so you've hit on um an incredibly um crucial issue in transformation doing the change is sometimes the easy bit it's about the cultural elements Mm. um because um cultural norms are often comfortable People know what they are, they, they're comfortable within that environment. And doing something different suddenly maybe um, may mean that your working environment is different or your the times you come into work is different. And that usually creates a tension. So it's about, is this the right thing to do? So the, the lens through which I try to view success is what impact will this change, this transformation have on the patients and public of Leicester? And if you can be really clear that this is what best in class looks like, like or this is um, why the change is 
um, has merit to the patients, then most people can get behind that. But the things that trip you up are usually the cultural bits <laughs> and mm-hmm. getting people on the bus in terms of the, the journey of, of, of change. Um, so I don't think that can be overstated about dealing with, with those issues. That said, Clara, doing innovative change can be incredibly motivating. Mm. So, um, you know, starting new technologies, um, seeing, a, making a change which significantly improves outcomes or length of stay or experience for patients is, I guess, what we all come to do, isn't it? It's why we came into healthcare. And so that can be very motivating for individuals and for teams. And to be part of that and to celebrate that down the line can be very powerful as well. So I think a lot of this is about storytelling. This is where we are. This is what best looks like. Why wouldn't we want to be best? Um, This is the, the journey that we're going to be on and getting people as I say, on that journey, working with you, that's that's how we've tried to do some of the some of the transformational change. And I think that we use that culture all the time clinically. I mean, if you've worked on critical care, I'm sure there's there's been a fair few emergencies there. And I remember one of my bosses once said to me, if there's an emergency, the best way to get everyone on board is to say, the patient is sick, we need to do this thing, whatever it is, and it focuses everyone, you know, everyone in theatre stops chatting or whatever, there's some bleeding, we need to stop it. And I think that's almost exactly what you've described in a sort of strategic and managerial um, lens is we're all here to serve the patients. Let's try and get on board with this. Yes, it's easier and it's more comfortable to do what we've been doing forever, but, you know, that's that's not going to change things. Have you had a... Has there been an example where that's been the case and and you've managed to to shift that culture? Within our current transformation programme, one of the big items is theatre transformation. Um, And that's because if we're going to get through the backlog of 104-week patients and patients who've been waiting a very long time for diagnostics or procedures... um, Productivity and efficiency is really important. So sweating the assets in our outpatients in theatres so that we see as many patients as is reasonable so that patients at the back end of the queue are waiting less long and um, the mortality associated with that is is reduced. Um, So we've had to look at um, how theatres work Um, how they're organised, how they work together, start and finish times, down times. Um, And all of that is very emotive to people who work in theatres. Getting the people to say is that if we can change um, some of the ways we're working, we can move the needle on the backlog and um, patients waiting. And that's been a really successful model. So we've done a lot in theatres. Um, and some of it's around process and some of it's around booking and some of it's around downtime um, and some of it's around environment and space. Um, but there have been very significant gains and that will have a, a powerful and positive impact um, on the backlog. 
I think that's really, uh, I mean, you've touched on a really interesting point there, which is if you are asking people to change, are you offending them that the thing that they're doing at the moment isn't valuable? And being able to navigate making that change, but also explaining to them, it's not that what you're doing is bad, it's just that we could do it better. And I think it's also about the storytelling. So Mm. people are good people who come in to do a good thing. Mm. But if you give them some of the narrative, most often they'll find a lot of the solution. And if they can see the patients that sit behind this and they can buy into the story they'll usually buy into the solution. Um, A top-down diktat about changing something really works, and rightly so, possibly. But people understanding their narrative, the story, their part in the solution, as I say, can be quite empowering. And and also, I think, setting the tone. So Mm. we have a chief executive who says, you have the solutions, we're here to help enact them. Um, you know, uh, he always says I'm usually the least informed person in the room. Um, you've got the, the ideas and the innovation, but we're here to help. Um, I think giving people permission and power and um, authority to do this is, is helpful too. And I think that sort of compassionate leadership approach mm. has really changed. So I look back 10 years ago and it was much more draconian. Um, and much more performance management. Now I think Mm. it's much more collaborative and learning. I do accept, of course, if you're a junior doctor and you're working in, uh, you know, unreasonable estate and the on-call room that you go to is shocking and there's no hot food at night, it won't feel like that. But Mm. our view is making staff's lives just that little bit easier and listening to what's really important from staff will help them do the transformation, the improvement and all of that. And I'm sure that's right. And I think that is a responsibility of the board and executives. Equally, I think it's an important responsibility of consultants because we know for uh, students and doctors in training that the greatest impact on their behaviour today will probably be their consultant and their consultant's desires and wishes and behaviours. So... um, ensuring that we are looking after the senior medical staff so that their culture and behaviours and performance also is congruent with what we're trying to do in compassionate leadership so that students and trainees can feel they can ask questions, they can challenge, they can innovate, they can contribute, they can sit on committees, they can be you know part of it. That's, that is um, a really empowered organisation, a fearless organisation, and that's what we're seeking to become. So if I'm, let's say I'm a junior consultant and the F1 comes to me and says, uh, Miss Monroe, Clara, whatever they're calling me these days, um, I think that we could be doing this a lot better and um, I want to change this. What can I say to them as a compassionate leader um, to, to enact that transformation, to encourage that? So the first thing we say is always say thank you, you know, thanks very much. So thank you for coming and raising it. Because sometimes people, they're really anxious about either saying a concern or uh, offering a uh, what might, what better might look like. So one, we would say, say thank you. Um, Two, if you can, um, you know, take them for coffee. (laughs) Now, I know that isn't always easy, but it is sometimes, you can do that sometimes. So take them for a drink and then say, 
tell me what you think better looks like. Tell me what this looks like to you. Tell me how you've got. So encouraging the conversation, encouraging the dialogue. And then the the um, consultant to phone the QI team or the transformation team and say, can, can you put some support around this? Is anybody else doing it? Can it be plugged into a bit of piece of work, a bigger piece of work? So um, th- those are the sorts of mechanisms. But really, it's about encouraging the conversation and pointing them in the right direction of somebody who um, who might be able to support and giving them permission to try a change and testing it and then you know um, measuring for improvement and seeing is this is this in patients benefits does it work and just to come full circle on what we started talking about especially given how terrible we are at all failing or admitting that you know framing things as failures when actually they're just things that didn't work is there anything that um, we can do as clinicians that when the F1 comes back and says, okay, I tried a thing and it didn't work, what can I say to them or what can I do for them that doesn't frame that as it didn't work, that's a failure? Yes, so I think um, my response to that with Virginia would be, um, why are you surprised? <laughs> you know, is that <laughs> just that the understanding that failure is part of a journey to success. Mm. Failing for, sometimes you strike gold, and you can implement something and refine it and develop it and it will succeed. But usually the pathway to success is trial and error and testing and retesting. And so learning to fail and fail fast and um, fail and moving on. But it's the reflect a bit about um, this not working is not failure. It's part of the journey to what better looks like. One of the things that I've churned over quite a bit since that interview with Moira um, was this idea of testing and expecting failure rather than testing because you expect to succeed. And if you don't succeed, you've essentially failed. Um, And one of the things that we we kind of talked about before we started recording that interview was how that differs in in tech in the tech industry um yeah and and i wondered if you had any reflections on that um yeah i think i mean it's a really good message and we, it's one of those things that we kind of know in our hearts of hearts but it's so easy to forget it that actually you know anything that's worth uh, pursuing any achievement is really going to be the result of an awful lot of effort and probably an awful lot of failures on the way. Um, so, you know, just understanding failure differently is really, really important. Normalising failure, I suppose, as a, as a waypoint on the route to success. So there's something mm. really about the culture um, of, 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 how to, of how to make change of what's involved and, and you know, that kind of accepting that um, the, the number of failures is going to outnumber the number of successes by, by mm. several fold. But it's, it's part of the process. I think that's the first time I've ever heard anyone articulate that, especially anyone from kind of transformational change background to say there are going to be more times that this doesn't work than it does. Was It's such a simple thing, isn't it? But it was such a light bulb moment for me. I went, oh, right, okay. I can get a bit more comfortable with that then. We can be a bit more okay with the fact that everything we try and implement in healthcare isn't going to be perfect. I wonder how much of that is wrapped up in the organisational culture because we're dealing with patients and health rather than machines and bits of tech. Yeah, maybe. I think that's an interesting point. And 
you know, Maury talks a lot about sort of trying to create an improvement organization, uh, an improvement minded organization was one term that she talked about. And she talks about a fearless organization. And, you know, these are names that have been applied to organizations in various sectors. I think you might be onto something there that, you know, it's more high stakes, isn't it? Because you get something wrong in patient care and clearly it can have really um, adverse consequences. Um, and I guess that can be quite um, chilling and, and quite sobering in terms of what you do. And I think there's, you know, the other the other aspect of what you're saying there is that everyone realizes because you know we use the technology ourselves that there's beaters and there's bugs and there's revisions and all the rest of it. You know, it, it's kind of more visible that you're going to um, have to go through a, a development mental process with with technology. We somehow have a different kind of approach, don't we, to organizational things? And what's at the root of organizational things is relationships between people and making processes that improve those relationships and make them more productive, um, create better outcomes, make life easier for people. And somehow I think, you know, I wonder if we're just slightly less tolerant of our own limitations as people in doing that you know relationships should come naturally to us technology is new and exciting and bold and innovative but actually we need to think exactly the same way about how we organize and it goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning about how you know bureaucracy actually is is a brilliant innovation or started off as a brilliant innovation that tries to facilitate coordination between complex groups of people trying to do things together but it's not the be all and end all. And actually, it's perfectly acceptable to realise that we need to innovate in that. And that's what a lot of improvement work focuses on. I, um, I've got this image in my mind now of uh, the download for NHS 10.3 coming out and everyone rushing to download it. And then the NHS becoming really slow like iPhones do as soon as you get the download. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about um, high stakes, but I think to try and turn that on its head going back to what we talked about before about people holding risk in different sizes of organization the it is more high stakes but then the reward is bigger when you get it right and I think maybe that's something that we don't think about enough we're more and I, I wonder if that's where this culture of it's always been done that way it's more comfortable and it's safer to stick with that oh it might be dangerous or dangerous to patients if we try and change things but actually what people don't say is yes but this also might be awesome and change things in a really good way um and when Moira talks about how to get people on the bus I've been thinking a lot about how to get people on the bus and I wonder if part of it is that it's yes this is a risk but if it pays off it could work really, really, really well and improve things. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, I, I work in a university and they say that herding academics is like herding cats, you know, it just <laughs> can't be done. And again, that's, you know, you don't want to sort of exceptionalise about particular sectors. That's true of universities. It's true of healthcare. It's true of many, many different organisations, particularly organisations where, as we've said earlier on, people have different perspectives, different preoccupations, different backgrounds. And, you know, seeing the big picture is actually really, really challenging in its own right. And I thought what Moira said about storytelling actually was, mm. was absolutely brilliant. Um, it sounds a little bit soft, a little bit fluffy, doesn't it, storytelling? But I think the key point here was that this isn't about, I don't know, you know it's not about PR. It's not about um, the sort of mission statements and all of that kind of stuff. It's not about fiction either. This is about actually showing people what might be possible. So it's it's kind of prospective, future-oriented storytelling. So exactly addressing that point about what we could change here if we really embrace it. 
And I think the other key function that, that, that Moira was talking about in terms of storytelling was, again, that linking in the little bit of the picture that any individual or any team can see to the big picture, that this isn't just change for its own sake. It isn't just being shaken up and having all these uh, you know, challenges to what you're used to for its own sake. It's actually for a purpose and, you know, we're all part of a, of a big picture here. I think those stories are going to become so important. Um, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, you can't th- read anything about health at the moment without reading about backlogs and waiting lists and what healthcare looks like post-pandemic. And I, I think balancing the fact that there is a workforce who are, you know, exhausted and tired and burnt out because of a pandemic, but also now who are, you know, feeling, I think, constantly like they're having to apologise to patients for long delays and long waits. And then somebody comes in and says, hey, we can make a change and it'll all be like, great. And the patients will be seen like tomorrow. And I think actually, you know, taking that huge problem of a 6.2 million, I think it is now, waiting list and balancing that with what are you going to see and change on the ground that takes somebody who's really good at storytelling and getting people on that bus and i you know yeah yeah, no i I think that's right 6.2 million at the time of recording um yeah yeah, and i I think i mean and i think maura really recognized that and you know she's got lots and lots of experience in this she talks about the need to sweat assets and i think that's clearly yeah. important. that's one way of doing these things and you've got to be really really careful that as you're sweating the assets you're not sweating the people as well and there are some forms of change and if you can find them then it's brilliant that sort of hit that sweet spot of making people's tasks easier at the same time as making the system that little bit more productive so But I think the other thing that um, Moira was talking about that seems really important in that regard and which is a real compliment to the storytelling is doing what you can. And sometimes it's little thing, but again, they show a commitment to just, you know, recognise the challenges that staff face. I think her uh, comment about um, the chief exec um, I think at her trust, she specifically cited the example of kind of stepping up and saying, look, I'm the least informed person in the room. Tell me what you need to make this work. Um, that links back to a lot of the stuff we've been talking in these episodes about compassion, about, you know, being a better colleague, about vulnerability. Um, and I think, you know, you're you're exactly right. You cannot solve this huge, what feels like an unsolvable problem by sweating the assets. If the assets are people who don't have anywhere to park and they don't have a locker and they haven't eaten, you know, that is just not going to work. So you've got to get the basic stuff you know and that Maslow's hierarchy of needs you've got to get that sorted first um have you seen examples where you um have seen kind of you know people at the top come down and do that really effectively that that kind of compassionate leadership yeah I've seen I've seen good examples of that and I've seen bad examples of that <laughs> and I think you're exactly right it's, it's about compassion it's about vulnerability but I think the other thing that that kind of approach to leadership is about is actually about realism and about acknowledging that, you know, I'm not just saying that I'm the least informed person in the room to make myself, you know, one of the lads and kind of fit in and, <laughs> and value other people. I'm saying it because it's actually probably true. Okay, yeah. I've got a great helicopter view of the organisation as a whole, and I can probably tell you a bit more about the finances. But in terms of what's going on right here, right now, what the problems are, what will make a difference to patients and to staff in terms of improving I'm definitely the least imp- informed person in the room. Yeah. And I think sometimes, um, you know, leaders walk the walk 
uh, or talk the talk rather, and sometimes they really understand that that's the case. Um, there's so there's there's quite a lot of approaches out there in the research literature to how you can try to do that. Um, and one thing that again is I'm not sure if it comes from the private sector originally, but it's common in the private sector. It's common in hospitals as well. Are these kind of leadership walk rounds? Uh, sometimes called patient safety walk rounds in, in the healthcare setting. And uh, in Toyota, they've got Gemba walk, so that's part of lean production. But basically, the idea behind all of these concepts is very similar. It's that senior leaders come down to a particular unit within a hospital or a production line or whatever it happens to be, and they commit to listening, and they commit to you know genuine dialogue, and they commit that they will then, having listened and having you know seen what the problems are, come back to the staff that they've spoken to a week later or a month later or whatever else. So it's a lovely idea. And you can you can completely imagine that sometimes it goes very, very nicely and sometimes it goes dreadfully. So, you know, we've done some research on this. Um, there's, there's lots of papers on this and there's some really interesting turns of phrase in terms of how it often goes. So one people, uh, or sorry, one um, uh, paper, I think this is in healthcare, that talks about these leadership walkarounds, calls it seagull management. And the reason they call it seagull management is you get these seagulls coming in, causing a lot of fuss, uh, getting in the way of everyone and leaving a load of, you know, what seagulls leave behind <laughs> after them. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's it's just not set up in the right way. So people think it's an inspection. So they start dusting the services yeah. before people get there. They brief them on what they should be saying. You know, it's like a CQC or an Ofsted inspection or something like that. They roll out the red carpet and... That's lovely. I'm sure that the visiting dignitaries have a lovely time and feel really welcomed and they will learn absolutely nothing and they will be absolute, uh, they will be able to do absolutely nothing about it. So it comes back to a point that I made earlier on that these tools are often pretty simple in a way. You know, there's no like magic 50 page um, kind of protocol for how you do a leadership walk around. You could probably summarize it in half a page, a few bullets. But how you do that and making sure you do it in a way that is faithful to the original intentions that's that's where the magic lies so that's it for this episode thank you to our guests penny Pereira and moira durbridge and thanks to you graham for joining me again bye for now thanks clara bye we'll be back soon with some more advice on making change so subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or any other major podcast app if you've enjoyed what you've heard or found it useful, please do rate and review us. I'm Clara Monroe, and this is Doctor Informed. <laughs>